And that's where the interaction with the FDA is critical. So the sooner the better, you need to be upfront when you go to those meetings with the FDA. However, you don't ask a question for which you don't want to hear the answer. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Naki. Welcome to CMC Live. On this episode, we'll be speaking to Dr. Catherine Bernard. Catherine directs our regulatory efforts and is key strategist working closely with her client submission teams. Catherine is an expert for regulatory submission lifecycle management, including both large and small molecules and all dosage forms. Her expertise includes successful negotiated CMC pathways with global health agencies, submitting briefing books, attending in-person meetings, and more recently, virtual meetings. Catherine has over, at least over, two decades of experience in preparing the CMC sections of INDs, NDAs, BLAs, and CT submissions. She holds a PhD in biochemistry and cell biology, and I'm not going to edit this, I'm going to try to pronounce it. Université Paul Sabatier, Toulouse, that's in France. She's also an active skier on the slopes of the Rocky Mountains near her home in Denver, Colorado. So Catherine, welcome. One thing I wanted to say, and this is true, you have been one of my most biggest fan. I'm the biggest fan of Catherine from, I guess, when we worked together, you were a consultant that I hired. So I am looking forward to talking with you here briefly, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, getting some experiences and also going back and reminiscing about some of the stories from the early days when we first met. So, so welcome. And I was thinking about the components of discussion today, if we can go through them. First of all, we might want to talk about preparing CMC, which is the chemistry manufacturing controls, preparing the dossier, which can be a daunting task. It's detail-oriented undertaking. And as the saying goes, the devil's in the details, and we can talk about some experiences there. Next point I wanted to talk to was and have you discuss some of the challenges in preparing CMC dossiers. We, we know a lot of examples there. And then maybe you can share some tips for success. A third point we cover, we'll cover here is some experiences in particular. Specifically, recently, we've done a little bit on expedited drug development. You've been active on some breakthrough designation programs, so we can maybe talk to some of that. Uh, and then we'll move on and maybe examine some manufacturing readiness discussion stuff, especially in the breakthrough and expedited timelines, when to talk to the FDA, when you have no time to talk to the FDA, and how you, uh, you might deal with that. And then from there, we wanted to take a look into the future of pharmaceutical regulations and where guidances and regs are going to go. And in your opinion, in the area of CMC, we can foresee and maybe follow over the next couple of years. So with that said, first question, real easy one. How did you get into regulatory affairs, CMC? Um, I don't think you told me this before. I know I did. And um, it started uh, with a PhD. So I did, uh, I did a lot of research in a cold room, in a freezing, uh, freezing room. And I was pretty always cold because I'm always cold. And so I thought, uh, I need to move out of science. I, need, I cannot do bench work anymore. And so I looked at um, other options, which could help the pharmaceutical industry um, with my scientific background. And that's how I uh, end up in uh, uh, regulatory affairs. And I end up in regulatory affairs in England because in France, most of the regulatory affairs assignment are from uh, taken with a pharmacist because when you do regulatory affairs or pharmacy in France, you have training so that help you getting there faster than um, maybe in other country. 
It was fun. I did it about 20 years ago, and I do not regret leaving the bench work to be a regulatory affairs. <laughs> okay. Okay, so besides not being cold anymore, what do you enjoy most about it, though? Skiing, unless I'm cold. <laughs> no. Um, I do like uh, contact um, with, a, with the people, and that's what I really enjoy consulting, because um, you have a variety of product and a variety of people and a variety of challenge. Okay. And then is there one moment, there's probably many, but is there one moment in particular, like a memory that you have doing this that you can share with us? Yes, definitely. And I good, think... Good memory too. A good memory, not a bad it one. Is, it is a very good memory. memory. Brian and I, we still laugh. It was Christmas time and I was going skiing on the slope when uh, one of the clients called me and said, you need, I need to get that document to the FDA. We need to discuss. And now... So I went on the lodge on the slope and we had a conference call for an hour and then we were able to successfully actually put the dossier together. So, but that's my, my more fun memory, kind of maybe not fun at the, at the time, but it is to these days, it's still pretty fun. Yeah. I think I remember that one, Brian. Do you have anything to add to that one? <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm very glad that you labeled it as fun because I remember at the time it was a bit tense. Uh, the fact that we didn't see it coming. But I have to tell you, it was just a handful of people. And when they needed us, we were there. And I think that's what makes it fun is that all of us were kind of in it together, so to speak. You know, I, I think we can all kind of laugh about it now. Not then so much, but now, yes, I remember yeah. it very well. I thought it was the other story. When we, when we took that trip, Catherine, to Switzerland with that company that licensed that one product that no one can characterize and... We went up into the, uh, do you remember that company? I can't name the name, of course, but um, this is where I met Catherine. I think we, she was consulting then and I was working for this small company. It rhymes with Alita, let's just say. And we actually went over to Switzerland and there was a company that was licensing the product out over there, but they wouldn't give any information to the, the US company that licensed a piece of it. So it was very difficult because the FDA wanted us to characterize the product that's a novel idea right you couldn't tell if each batch was the same because there, there might have been a hundred actives in it so one of my memories we were up outside geneva there was some nice farm but do you guys remember that hadron collider it was that uh, particle accelerator that yeah. they yep. actually have i think it's yeah. right, right on the border of france and yeah so it's like about it's 100 miles underground and i think that day we were there we were all sitting around this nice picnic table in this countryside mm -hmm. And the accelerator was apparently going to be tested for the first time that afternoon. And if you guys know anything about it, you know, I think it, it creates like mini black holes and it could suck the whole galaxy into th this thing. So I probably shouldn't have been so worried, but I, I thought the whole countryside was just going to vacuum in. But even if I was here, it, was, it didn't work out. I think that day, I think something happened. There was like a some of the magnets weren't working. So it took another like three years and they, they finally tested. But anyway, we had, a, we had a great trip. We had another consultant. His name was Chet Myers and um, he yeah. used to work with us. And then I think between him and I, you know, this is where we started to realize small biotech companies, you know, might need a little help and may not know how to make the right decisions and those things like that. So anyway, moving right along here. So preparing these CMC sections in general over the years has changed a bit. It really hasn't. The amount of information maybe you provide is different based on your purpose there. You may want to hold some back or you may not have information, so you have to give a little bit more in another area. Catherine, can you talk to us about some of the challenges in preparing CMC dossiers, some of the you know, situational 
without going down too deep, and maybe again, share some tips, things that you've seen, mistakes out there that you've seen, things that you can offer us? From an authoring standpoint, you need to be very careful of what you're going to put in a dossier during the product development. So basically, you know, when you start preparing for an IND on a phase one study, the level of detail will be different than for the BLA or an NDA. And so what happened is during the product development, sometime the uh, sponsor will move along to, will be acquired by different sponsors and so on. And so at the time you file your NDA, you kind of have lost some of the document that was the early development. And then, you know, you still have to recreate the story for the FDA when it's time to put the product on the market. And so we have had a bit of challenges, you know, retrieving the document and explaining what was done at the time. And so you talk to the FDA and make sure that they will be on board. And that's where the interaction with the FDA is critical. So the sooner the better, you need to be upfront when you go to those meetings with the FDA. However, you don't ask questions for which you don't want to hear the answer. And so it's, it's a balance of, yes, we would like to have an answer, but what could we propose that would satisfy the FDA and will make the dossier successful? Okay, so that's a common theme then, right, for what we do as well. So first question, do you have all the information required to assemble high-quality dossier maybe, right? And more often than not, is the answer is yes. They say yes, right? I have information that is missing or I have all the information, but I can't find it, right? They're typical answers that we hear. So how about if there is missing information? How would you deal with that? Can you talk to some of that point? You know, is there a chance that you may want to bring that up or do you want to hold back and, and talk about that after you get questions? So usually if we do not have the information, we try to put the justification based on science. The FDA are pretty reasonable. And if your justification is based on science, not just, you know, I lost the information, you will have a good chance to have a successful application. So that's a good one. And I found out early on when I was doing it by myself, you know, a lot of folks you go and they wanted help with submission authoring. And then they, you know, they said they had all the source information, but then you get there and, you know, it's sporadic or they don't know where it's located or, you know, if the product was licensed in, then somehow it's missing and you have to find it too. So project management, is that important in submission authoring? It is a critical piece because it takes a long time to put a submission together, even though it could be an IND for a phase one. You still need some information to be gathered, to be collected, and then to be written in a dossier so the FDA will uh, accept your IND. And the timing is critical, definitely these days with the pandemic, because if you don't have the best uh, submission that you could put together, the FDA may, may just put you on a clinical hold. They are under a lot of pressure to get moving all COVID-19 uh, product. Okay. And a follow-up to that, target dates. Many people to meet objectives for the boards and their, their bosses or their, their shareholders set a target date, right? Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how that works, especially with CMC and how sometimes that's the last piece, even without breakthrough folks, you know, as you can say, maybe push some of the decisions and some of the work off on CMC till they have clinical. So you've worked and done this for a long time. Can you talk about target dates? You know, folks set a date, maybe for the whoever listens to this out there, maybe it's a, it's a good piece of advice for them. Realistic timelines, right? Right. So again, 
usually the CMC is the last bit for, for example, an NDA or BLA submission. Um, because, you know, if you read the guideline, you need three validation lot or three consistency lot. And that takes time. And so you could negotiate with the FDA to, for example, submit with the first PPQ lot, do your second PPQ lot during the, the reviewer of your BLA or NDA. And then um, you, prior to launch, you follow with a third PPQ lot. Having said that, if you, for example, are in an orphan designation situation, where you are not going to use your three lots because there is not that many patients, it is negotiable to submit your ELA with one PPQ lot and do a post-commitment that uh, you're going to submit the two other PPQ lot or validation lot when they will be available, meaning when the first uh, PPQ lot will uh, run out. Okay. So going back to breakthrough designation and expedited can you talk to some experiences in particular, the, the CMC considerations when, when a drug development project is assigned breakthrough status? So the breakthrough status is basically it's during the product development. So you get the breakthrough designation. It kind of doesn't mean that you could cut the corners and, and it's just mean that you're going to get more uh, regulatory interaction with the FDA. Talking about like assignment of breakthrough therapy designation, you know, how it leads to accelerated clinical, which could cut off two years of development, conventional development, right? So the timelines are affected by that, right? Versus the traditional, you know, when you do things and those things like that, it might reduce real-time stability for your commercial material. So you might have to leverage stability information from developmental studies. You have limited manufacturing experience. If you get breakthrough right before you even put an IND in, you don't have a very lot of time to make materials or get data. You need to consider launches with uh, initial commercial supplies in a lot of instances. And the formulation process, transfer, tech transfer, finding an actual commercial facility that can supply your, your patient population might not be happening or unavailable or not ready, could delay you. So with all those things said, Catherine, can you tell us about some of those experiences that you've had? Maybe in some, some ways that you learn things from, you can change and you know, advise people in the future, or you know, are there things that, that you can talk about? So with the breakthrough, my experience was not too much on the stability, but definitely on the process, the lack of you know, experience on the process. I would say method not completely optimized or characterized, which you know, was basically post-commitment to um, ensure that the method forced degradation to make sure that the method are stability indicating and, and things like that. So for me, those were the two big issues that and I would maybe not issue more challenge that we encountered with the breakthrough designation. The fast track is also another expedite program where you could also encounter the same challenge. And uh, recently, the FDA for biological product has put the regenerative medicine advance therapy guideline. Again, with all of those expedite program during the drug development is basically there is an unmet medical need. And so we truly need uh, to get the product as fast as possible, I would say, without compromising safety and efficacy. Okay, so when you're when you're examining manufacturing readiness, you know you, whether you're pre-IND and you know that they're gonna maybe sometimes the FDA gives you um, the right for breakthrough, or if, like you said, fast track, right? You mentioned methods, analytical methodology, and that that's traditional development too. You have bad methods, you can't equate materials across the the phases of development. This is probably one thing you can talk about at a, any kind of pre-meetings. 
but you, at the end of the day, you have to have methods that are appropriate. Is there anything else that you might discuss in advance if you have a breakthrough or a fast track besides methodologies with the FDA during meetings? Right. So um, you are going to, to discuss your process and your critical process parameters and how many lot or what would be considered sufficient experience from a manufacturing development to be able to get a successful application. So okay. critical process parameter is one of them. What's your control strategy during your process? Because obviously you do not have a lot of manufacturing experience. And so you may consider replacing the experience, but more uh, in process control. So the uh, manufacturing process is under control, basically, which is one of the main worried about uh, the FDA. Okay, so that's more like a sort of science-based approach to where you're at, right? That would be... That's correct. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Brian, any thoughts? We've, we've done a, a number of breakthrough programs, fast-track programs. Yeah. So typically, the sponsor has limited time to develop the drug without delaying the filing. It's not as much work as is usually done in this situation, on top of an already limited budget. So regardless of the indication and the need to generate data fast, as they have to have a very short runway before takeoff. Would you have any questions for, or do you have any thoughts yeah. yourself? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we have done um, a few. And, and Catherine, what are some of the challenges in managing the sponsor's expectations? A lot of time when you see breakthrough or fast track, certain assumptions are made on what the agency will and will not tolerate or accept. And how do you manage the expectations? Or do they always seem to agree with what the FDA is expecting? Or do you have to educate them in a sense? And how do you do it? Yes. Um, so basically, from, from a sponsor standpoint, it's kind of a magic door, which is not because, as I said, I mean, there is an expectation from the FDA. So it's not because you're going to get a breakthrough or a fast track that you're going to cut the corner and not have all the appropriate information that is required or expected by the FDA. However, what you could do is do a science-based or some justification that you could propose to the FDA to mitigate the risk and ensure that your product meets always the same quality and strength. Another thing, we have situations where each agency reviewer is different as well, and their expectations on, on the review of the CMC package is sometimes different than as expected. So have you come across situations where you're dealing with a reviewer that has thrown you a question or a response that's something you hadn't seen before. How do you manage that? Because I do think it runs the gamut depending on who you get. I mean, they're people as well. And as they review, and if you, you write something in a way to tell the story and then a question comes, what is the, the, the strangest off the chart types of questions you get and how do you manage those? If you truly believe that the, the response or the question you got from um, the FDA or Maybe unreasonable. It could be just because the story you write was not clear enough. So in the first place, I would at least at a minimum try to get either the reviewer on the phone or um, via email explaining what we thought or explaining what is our position. I had come across maybe not on the CMC, but on the clinical where it was a different product, not too much for that clinical division. They did not understand the disease. And so we truly had a, a key opinion leader that 
taught the FDA what was the disease because it was a rare disease and how to treat it. So you could educate the FDA. As you said, the FDA are people. They do not know everything. And so you you have also the, uh, that option. Now, you also have to bear in mind that if the FDA asks for something or recommends something, it's because they have seen another dossier from another competitor and they may have seen like a method, for example, or a process or a step that was better. And so they may advise you to do that way. So that's also what you have to take into consideration. Did, did they not understand your process? Did you not write a proper story? Or because they have reviewed something else that is not available to you as the sponsor, that's what the question come from or the response come from. Okay. So it sounds like the adoption of like a customized risk-based plan from a CMPC perspective is recommended by you here in consideration of the benefit of the patient, focused on control strategies, et cetera, to ensure the compliance is met, consistent quality is met, you know, that should all be acceptable to the health authorities around the globe, in fact. My second part, I guess, the question part of that is, is it good advice to listen to the agency and their advice? Always. I'm sorry to say it, but yes. You need to at least, maybe if you don't want to follow them, justify your position as to why you don't want to follow them. And make sure that they are on board with your justification, because if those recommendations are made at the IND stage and then times comes and you file your NDA or your BLA and you have not taken into consideration those recommendations, um, there may be a showstopper. So either during, I mean, along the line, you put a justification and you make sure that the FDA are on board with that or um, you do the experiment or whatever is recommended by the, uh, by the agency. I think we oftentimes ask to do a, at least a cursory gap assessment of the program. And if there's prior dialogue with the agency, or if there's a particular area of focus that we find in the gap assessment, we spend more time to develop that argument and that position because we know it could be a potential question coming back. Correct. And I did like your answer. You know, I mean, there these these FDA folks, reviewers. This is what they do for a living. You know, they may not have worked in the industry on the other side, you know, but they are a gatekeeper for safety and compliance, which is important. And you know, like like you mentioned, or somebody mentioned, you know, listening is a is a skill that not many folks have. You know, communication is a skill not many many folks have. So if you can use those two, you know, you can also learn things. And as as you and I and Brian actually, you know, going through this with different sponsors, dealing with situations kind of seen, you know, what, how to handle things, how not to handle things. Did you listen to your parents when you were younger, Catherine? Obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I should. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what they say? Always, you should always listen. I tell my kids this. You should always listen to your parents, not because they're always right, but because they've made more mistakes. <laughs> they have more experience with being wrong. And I have an example of this. So when I was younger, my parents said, you know, never, first of all, they didn't like when I went to concerts and they didn't like some of the folks I hung out with and stuff. So they also said, never talk to strangers. So I think we were going to a Metallica concert and I was like 17 and I was a good Catholic boy and stuff, hanging out with good, good friends and stuff like that. So we had a van and we're driving down the road. And this is back in the day when, when you went to concerts, you couldn't buy them online. You had to buy them from scalpers, right? <laughs> yeah. Trying to find the cheapest ones. And you would sit well, wherever, right? 
So we're driving down the road and we see another van and it looked a little suspicious. It was broken down. No one was helping. There was a guy outside. And I, I told to my friend, I said, my friend, I said, you know, why don't we stop and help him, right? And then the thing in the background, you know, listen to my parents. They told me never, you remember back in the 70s and 80s, Brian, like people on the side of the road, hitchhikers, <laughs> right? So we Keep stopped. Going. And of, of course, you know, we they said, where are you going? The concert. It was a Metallica concert. And I said, what are you guys doing? They're, they're going to a concert as well. So I said, do you guys have tickets? No. And of course, they gave us an asset. You know, we just put it in our pocket because we were a good Catholic. We didn't do that stuff, right? So we were scared, though. Like, we went and then, you know, it's like, how are you guys going to get tickets? They didn't have any money, right? So I think the one guy says, we're going to get a screwdriver and kill somebody get their tickets or something like that. So we got to the point where we kind of got out of there and, you know, kind of feared for our lives for a little bit. And then we looked back and go, wow, had I listened to my parents then, you know, I would have had no chance of whatever was going to happen there, right? Yeah. I can tell you about the concert later. But, you know, the moral of the story is, you know, there's a lot of folks that believe they know better than some of the agencies. And, you know, as, as conservative sometimes as the advice is, these folks, reviewers and et cetera, see a lot of information. They see a lot of holes. They see a lot of programs. So listening them, to them, you know, could help certainly. And I think you, you guys both agree. I don't know if you have your own stories to share here, but... Well, I was thinking about it and, and you know, Catherine... Perhaps an example of where when you started into the journey of authoring a submission and as the story became more clear, you had to adjust the strategy accordingly. At what point do you realize that perhaps the client or the sponsor's argument maybe will not pass muster and you need to try to convince them of of a different direction and still brace them for the fact that they still may get questions? But before we come on board, oftentimes the client and the people, their experiences at their company are ingrained in their head and they say the FDA will do X, Y, and Z because it's in the guidance and that's what they know. But again, as we said, they're people. So at what point when you look at a strategy that a client presents to you and you realize that's not going to work, how do you manage that? And have you had that in a situation where you've had to come up with a different strategy? Yeah. And as you said, usually most of the time we kind of do a gap analysis. So the client will come with their own um, strategy. Then we looked at what did you do to comfort or based on on that strategy. And then we will review internally um, at DSI and then we'll figure out that maybe it's not the best strategy and we'll provide a different strategy or we'll say to the sponsor that if they want to carry on with that strategy, there is a risk at the end that the FDA would not agree. So, you know, it's always a company risk to determine, yes, um, I, I understand your position, but I'm going to submit. It could be also tied up to investors and, um, you know, for some biotech company, submission of an IND is a big milestone. And maybe the outcome is not as big as just the submission. So, you know, there is there is time where as a consultant, you could provide the best of your knowledge, but then the the sponsor will decide ultimately what to do and when to do it. You advise, basically, you can advise. Yeah. I was thinking just, Catherine, I think the importance of a project timeline that's agreed to by the client. But you understand that not everything can be done that day and that things have to be done in an order. You know, how important it is to, to map out that plan for the authoring for the client. Right. So there is sections that are easier 
and more ready, you know, for example, all the specification most of the time, the, the sponsor knows the product and know what they are going to. And then um, there is sections that are a bit more difficult, like all the process development, all the analytical method development. So um, those sections potentially could come last. And so when you write your uh, dossier, if it's an IND or a BLA or an NDA, you, you have to take that into consideration. Which section could we write now versus the section that we could write later? And the sponsor must understand that it's not, in order. Usually you don't write it in order. However, having said that, at the end, all of these sections are really interrelated to each other. So, you know, your process development will impact how you're going to present your uh, commercial manufacturing process, for example. The justification of your specification will impact your uh, batch analysis. And so, all of those sections, even though they are uh, writing independently, at the end, you must do a global review to ensure that they all, all make sense and they are all tied up together. Right. Completely agree. I do. Can you tell us a little about your thoughts on the trends and where, take a look into the future of pharmaceutical regulations in the areas of CMC. What do you foresee? To be honest, I would say not too much change. You know, you are still going to require, I mean, to demonstrate that your product is meet the quality and you are still uh, required to manufacture it under GMP. Maybe a different take on it is with some of the, you know, we went from small molecules to large molecules and characterization. There's new techniques and there's things like that. Now you're seeing different type of biotherapeutics, those type of uh, new modalities that are not necessarily the same. There's not a lot of guidances there. Gene therapies, for example, some yeah. guidances came out a few years ago. They're similar. They took the same concepts as the, you know, well-characterized programs. But do you see any changes there? You know, you talked about methodologies, good methodologies, process. You know, maybe some of these, you only have one batch. Anything, you know, with some of the futuristic stuff, the new products coming down the road, do you see any of those influencing the, uh, so, the regulation? My only experience um, would be with autologous cell therapy product, which obviously the challenge is on the manufacturing process because, as, as I said, it's an autologous cell therapy, so it's designed per patient. And so instead of having a big manufacturing suite, you'll have small entity and you're going to share maybe the same incubator with two patients or three patients. So the cross-contamination and how do you trace uh, the product from A to, I mean, from beginning to the end is the most critical piece. And, and your process validation um, will be a bit different. You're not going to do three batches, but you may be doing matrix to ensure that you have taking into account all the different parameters during your process. Um, so that's my experience with the cell therapy product. Okay. Last question. You know, I learned a bit about how you got into regulatory. I've known you for a number of years and been on some projects and we had some of the same experiences, similar experiences as well. Can you tell us something that we don't know about you, Catherine? So we can talk about that next time. <laughs> no, uh, just uh, as I said at the beginning, I would like to retire soon. <laughs> but at least be able to choose the be able to choose the product. Um, there is more 
products that are fun than other, but that's it. I tend to never say no to any project. I end up with a lot of projects. Yes. <laughs> Maybe yes. too many. Okay. And then the, the very last question, and because I know your time your time's important here. So if you, if you can have dinner with two people, dead or alive, who would they be and why? That piece I do not know, and I have not any answer on the top of my head. Actually, the, the only answer I would get would be Metallica, because I have a husband that is very fun of Metallica, and he does play in a group. Yeah. So I would say Metallica, the, but that's, you know. And, that's, the, and the other one, obviously, is Ednarki, as we know. So. <laughs> So, but I so, met you already. We had dinner together. Well, I said, I said in the future, if you can have dinner, oh, dinner I mean, alive, hopefully. We'll do that oh, sometime yeah, that soon, hopefully. Good. All right. Well, anyway, I, I'll, I'll wrap it up here. But, but um, again, Catherine, Bernard, um, exceptional. I, I met you when I was a bit younger. I had some pretty good experiences, but I also learned a great deal, not just in the beginning, but I hear you know a, a great amount of information, how you handle some of these sponsors. You've made a you know, a difference in our industry to, to get some of these approved products out there on the market based on, you know, your, some of your help um, with some of the sponsors. So I appreciate it. And I do look forward to meeting you in person again as, at some point soon. Um, yes. But um, so just the final thing is I want to say thank you and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Okay. Have Bye. A on our next episode, we'll be talking with Coleman Byrne live from King of Prussia, PA. This is going to be a rare treat, people. I have known Coleman for many years now, and we had worked together actually in the industry even prior to DSI. We'll be talking about how to know when to toss your prescription drug or refrigerate it. Stability studies provide that answer. Check the label any prescription you fill, and chances are it'll have a label with an expiration date as well as instructions on whether to keep the drug out of the sunlight, refrigerator, or another instruction. Coleman is our most senior analytical services expert here at DSI and is very technically proficient in all aspects of analytical as well as stability, having spent many years managing both contract labs and AR&D groups at pharma and uh, emerging biotech companies. His background includes biologic, large material, and synthetic small molecules, raw materials, release testing, HPLC, and you name it, API manufacturing process, lipid-based product testing, and various forms of drug product testing in support of combination products, in fact. Coleman provides oversight to our uh, internal analytical team as well. He directs and supports these clients uh, in any stage of drug development. So using his technical ability in conjunction with his knowledge of submission requirements, he can not only support um, initial filings, but also as a technical guru in the defense of submissions, uh, including information requests and person regulatory agency meetings and annual reports and updates. This is a podcast that you don't want to miss. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cmc live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.